Hi, I'm Cam. And I'm Dev. And you're listening to Criminalish, a true crime podcast where two best friends trade stories ranging from the wild and wacky to the downright messed up. Love listening to the Criminalish podcast? Want to hear more from Cam and Dev? Then consider becoming a subscriber for $2.99 a month. Subscribers will have exclusive access to minisodes, Dev and Cam's live reactions to crime shows and documentaries, as well as early access to any multi part episodes and so much more. Click the link in the description if you're interested in subscribing. See y'all in Cell Block C. So, before we get into today's story, what you drinking, friend? I'm just drinking some water. I went out and had a couple of margaritas yesterday and I feel dehydrated afterwards. So just good old H2O. What about you, friend? So I am just drinking some tea. I actually was going to get some wine for today, but I ended up not having time to get it before we started recording. I definitely needed the tea today because today's story is going to be another heavier one. So needed some tea just to help calm my nerves. And now my nerves are up because I don't know what we're covering today. So what are we covering today, friend? So today we are covering the murder of Jeannie Butkowski. And before I get into the story, I, one, want to extend some trigger warnings for discussion of sexual assault, domestic violence, stalking, and substance use. And two, I want to ask whether or not you've heard of this case before. I don't believe so. The last name is sticking out to me. And I could just be because I think it's a cool last name. I think that's a very unique last name. And that's why I'm like, no, I think I've heard that name before. But the name by itself is not ringing any hard bells for me. So Regina Bukowski was born on August 5th, 1959 in Puerto Rico. But she actually went by Jeannie, so I will be using the name Jeannie for the rest of the story today. Although Jeannie was born in Puerto Rico, she considered Virginia Beach, Virginia to be her hometown, and that's where she grew up, attended high school, all of that. So we don't have too much about Jeannie's early life and high school years, but we do know that after she graduated high school in 1977, she attended a community college near her hometown in Virginia Beach, Virginia. Jeannie was always described as extroverted and spirited and as someone who was willing to take risks. In 1981, she met a Navy enlistee named Tito and fell in love quickly. A few months after they met, Tito and Jeannie got engaged. And yeah, I said a few months. Tell me you're dating a military man without telling me you're dating a military man, baby. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So Jeannie's parents were, of course, hesitant, but eventually they did support her decision. And over the next few months, Jeannie got to planning her wedding. 
Her father even paid over $5,000 for flowers, decorations, all this. And mind you, this was 1980. So $5,000 then is worth a lot more money now. I don't have the exact conversion, but I would guess in the range of 10 to 15K. So two days before their wedding, Tito called everything off to be with another woman that he'd been talking to behind Jeannie's back. Tell me you're dating a military man without telling me you're dating a military man. For real. So of course, after Tito called off the wedding, Jeannie's self-confidence was destroyed. But she actually bounced back pretty quickly from this. And she decided to connect with her high school boyfriend, Tony. She knew that he'd also had a marriage that had failed recently, so she thought that he'd be looking for something more stable, just like she was. So when she and Tony reconnected, they quickly fell in love again. It was like they were in high school. And on January 3rd, 1983, Tony and Jeannie got married and moved in with her parents in Virginia Beach. Jeannie loved married life and she had lots of plans for her new family, but Tony didn't really feel the same way. He slowly started to withdraw himself from her without any explanation. And because there was no explanation, Jeannie blamed herself and thought that Tony was maybe withdrawing from her because of how she looked. So she started exercising, went on a diet, and made sure that her hair and makeup were always done whenever Tony was around. But surprise, surprise, this didn't really change anything. In the fall of 1985, seemingly out of nowhere, Tony moved to Pennsylvania and filed for divorce. Just a quick PSA. If you ever feel like your partner is withdrawing from you and that you need to change something about yourself in order to keep them around, I don't think they're the partner for you. I really don't. It is not your obligation to quote fix end quote (laughs) anything about yourself to stay with somebody else. Because more than likely the problem is within them and not within you. Completely agreed. But to speak on this case, I do feel really bad for her that she fell into that trap of trying to change herself to stay with him. And then he left her anyways which screw that man. Yeah. Screw him. And I feel bad for her too. And as you can imagine, this really hit hard. I mean, two failed relationships in such a short period of time for somebody who really just wanted to find somebody to love and somebody that would love them back. So in 1986, Shortly after Tony filed for divorce, Jeannie started going to therapy, and she also got really close with one of her friends named Denise, who was also going through a divorce at the time. While in therapy, Jeannie was working on herself, working on her confidence, getting it back, becoming her old self again. Yes, ma'am. We love therapy. We love therapy and growth. And therapy works because after two years of this, Jeannie was back to her old self. She was going out every week with her friend Denise. She had joined a bowling league and a softball team, and she'd even started dating again. Yes, ma'am. She met a man named Mike 
through a mutual friend, and Mike was described as a tall, handsome police officer who just also happened to be into fitness. And because Mike was into fitness, a lot of their dates were at the gym, and eventually Jeannie really began to enjoy working out. So she told Mike that she wanted to start building some more muscle. In order to help her with this goal, Mike introduced her to a man at the gym who he knew was very knowledgeable about weightlifting. This man's name was Pernell Jefferson. And when Jeannie met him, she was drawn to his confidence and charm. And to Jeannie, Pernell seemed like a responsible, driven, and athletic person who had her best interest in mind. I would just like to note that Cam called this man tall and handsome as opposed to tall, dark and handsome. Yes, I would like to note that too. So I'm assuming he is not one of the brothers. <laughs> so to, to Jeannie, Purnell seemed like a responsible, driven and athletic person who had her best interest in mind. And he also seemed very successful. He told her that he was a former football player who still had a future in the NFL. You know how men be like, you know, if I wouldn't have hurt my knee in high school, I could have gone pro. That That's how I picture it, but whatever. I know several men right now doing that, <laughs> playing indoor football, hitting me with that. I just, I'm just waiting to go pro. Mm -hmm. Sweetheart, it's okay. You can play indoor because you just didn't want to play football. If you want to play in an adult league of football, that's okay. Just right. play. I'm not judging you, but don't sit here and look me in my face and tell me that you could have went pro when all your teammates did and you didn't. Right. It's okay. Everybody don't go pro. That's why there's not that many teams. So soon after introducing the two, it was clear to Mike that Jeannie liked Purnell a lot more than she liked him. So let's learn a little bit more about who Purnell Jefferson was. So Purnell Jefferson was born in 1964. I couldn't find the exact date, but I do know he's a Gemini. So either late May or early June. Also, red flag. Male Geminis, I'm sorry. If you're a male Gemini, I'm, I'm sorry, but just stay away from me. I was just about to say the exact same thing. I was like, oh, he's a, oh, he's a Gemini. Yeah. Purnell was born and raised in Benson, North Carolina, which is a small town. And he didn't really have the easiest upbringing. His father left their family when Purnell was just three years old, leaving his mother, Joan, to raise Purnell and his brother Willie by herself. And although Purnell and his brother did well in school, they were known as exceptional athletes. Purnell was an especially talented football player and was known as one of the best players in the state. Okay, so maybe he wasn't lying when he said he could have gone pro. So around his small town, Purnell was known as this polite, athletic, smart young man. So as you can imagine, that made him very popular. And during his junior year in 1980, he started dating his first girlfriend. And even though Purnell was known as this nice and polite man by others, his girlfriend soon discovered another side of him. And just so y'all know, I will be referring to her as his high school girlfriend. Her name hasn't been released and I also won't be making up a name for her. So. When I say high school girlfriend, she is the one that I'm referring to. Specifically, Purnell would keep track of everyone his girlfriend talked to, and he always wanted to know where she was. Red flag number one. 
Over the next couple years while they were dating, she tried to gently confront him about his controlling behavior. And near the end of Pernell's senior year, his girlfriend had had enough and she tried to break off their relationship for good. This, however, resulted in Pernell punching her. He apologized and said that it would never happen again. And the girl's father even found out and went to Pernell's mother's house to confront her about what her son had done. I think that's very nice of her father to go confront his mother about what he did instead of pulling up with a shotgun ready to fight like my father would. Right. I think that was very polite of him. And I'm sure too, like with this being a small town, everyone knew everyone. So I'm sure that her father knew Pernell's mother, vice versa. And so it was like, hey, Joan, your son just hit my daughter. Handle this. And Pernell's mother made him apologize, but that was it. Another PSA. We're just going to be full of PSAs in this episode. Oh, we are. If somebody thinks it appropriate to hit you in your relationship, get out. They will not change. The apology does not mean anything. They will not become a better person because if they had the gall and the audacity to hit you once, they will hit you again. I know that sounds really cold. I know that sounds how it sounds. I don't care. Get out. The behavior will only escalate. Yeah. And I think too, like in a lot of those relationships, it's, it's hard to get out. We know it's not easy to get out. And especially for Pernell's girlfriend, after she tried to break up with him, she was too afraid to do it again because she saw what he did the last time. So she decided to stay with him. But also she's a child. So someone should have stepped in on her behalf. I completely agree. She shouldn't have had to deal with that by herself. That was not her job. That was not her cross to bear. So why did she deal with that by herself? Especially when adults knew. I completely agree. So by the time Purnell was a senior in high school, he was known as a state all-star. Purnell was known to be quick and versatile on the field, and he was soon offered a football scholarship to attend Guilford College in Greensboro, North Carolina. And this scholarship made his girlfriend feel like he was special, and she decided that maybe the relationship was worth continuing, which even though Purnell was gifted and skilled on the field, does not make him a better boyfriend. And it did not make him a better boyfriend. While Purnell was at college, his girlfriend eventually gave birth to his child, which she named Purnell Jr. And Purnell, of course, was not really involved in his child's life. So now that Purnell was in college, he was still seen as a gifted football player, but of course the stakes were higher. So he began taking steroids his sophomore year to keep up with the pressure of college football. And these only made a mean man meaner. His high school girlfriend decided to finally end things with him. And this time things actually went smoothly. What, what changed in Purnell for things to go differently than the way they did last time? Well, this was because he was already talking to someone else. Purnell met the woman who would eventually become his college girlfriend when he was in his first year and she was a sophomore. 
At first, she found Purnell charming, but just like his high school girlfriend, she soon noticed that as he became more popular, he also became more possessive and violent. I will say for anyone who is very sensitive to domestic violence, we will be putting timestamps for explicit descriptions of domestic violence in the show notes. And I would recommend that you skip ahead about a minute to a minute and 30 seconds. So once after disagreement, Purnell hit his college girlfriend in the face. Just like he did with his high school girlfriend, he apologized and begged for her forgiveness and told her that it wouldn't happen again. This was, of course, not true, and Purnell hit her on multiple occasions. And when she tried to end things with him, he would threaten her. She would even wear long sleeve shirts to hide her bruises and make up excuses for the ones that she couldn't hide. In 1984, his college girlfriend graduated from Guilford College and accepted a job in Chapel Hill, which was about an hour from Greensboro. Once, when visiting his college girlfriend in Chapel Hill, Purnell had beaten her so bad that he had to rush her to the hospital. Doctors there tried to call the police, but the girlfriend was at first reluctant to press charges. And when she eventually did, Purnell was arrested and released on his own recognizance, which means that he signed a written promise that he'd show up for all the court appearances and wouldn't engage in any illegal activity. As a result of this, Purnell was fined $200. He sent this woman to the hospital. And you know it had to be bad because if your abuser takes you to the hospital, that means you are knocking on death's door and they don't want to get a murder charge. And he's fined $200. And to put a cherry on top of this cake, he made her pay the $200 fine. That's disgusting. And again, I feel bad for her that she's going through that. She doesn't deserve to go through that. Nobody deserves to go through that. Yeah. And honestly, this story just shows how many barriers there are to people who are in domestic violence situations and are even trying to get out of them. Because Purnell's college girlfriend even tried to report to police that Purnell was beating her and had been stalking her. And police told her that there was nothing they could do. And when she tried to hire a civil attorney, who was a woman? The woman turned down the case and told her that she should have made better decisions. And this is how domestic abuse continues in our society, especially when you as a woman tell me, a woman, that it's my fault, that somebody else's actions, that somebody else's violent tendencies are my fault that is how people stay in abusive relationships because they are worn down and they are told that somehow everything is their fault and that's disgusting i don't know who that lawyer is but i feel like she should have lost her license for that that's ridiculous and this is another thing that bothers me about when you report specifically stalking i remember being told to my face that they can't do anything unless he does something to me. 
me being scared is not enough for them to do anything. And she's coming in with bruises and she's coming in. She is the evidence. The bruises on her body are the evidence. So don't sit here and tell me you can't do anything. If you don't want to do your job and if you don't care about women, just say that. Exactly. Even though Pernod's college girlfriend knew this darker side of him. At college, he was still seen as the football star who was skilled on and off the field. And in 1984, at the end of Pernell's college career, he was given a signing bonus by the Cleveland Browns and invited to their five-day training camp. However, once he got to the training camp, everyone there seemed bigger and stronger than anyone he'd ever been on a team with or even played against. And based on advice from one of the coaches, he'd stopped taking steroids right before camp started. And this made him feel weaker. But his fragile ego couldn't cope with not being the best. And he snuck away from preseason camp because he was afraid that they were going to cut him. Little did he know they actually were going to offer him a position on the team. This tells me a lot about you because not only are you a <laughs> enough to beat on women, but also, you don't even have a backbone to deal with rejection. You can't take a quarter of the beating up that you are putting on your girlfriend because everybody else is bigger and stronger like you are in your relationship. It's crazy, isn't it? It's crazy when you put it like that, huh? So Pernell returned to North Carolina where he continued taking steroids and continued to assault his college girlfriend. Near the end of 1985, his college girlfriend tried to end their relationship, but Purnell didn't take this well. He would call her and leave threatening voicemails. In 1986, she'd started dating someone else, and Purnell would show up on her college campus to leave her threatening notes. During the spring semester of 1986, while his girlfriend was obtaining her master's degree, Purnell broke into her college dorm, kidnapped her, and took her to a local hotel where he beat and sexually assaulted her. She finally escaped when one of her friends called her, heard what happened, and contacted the police. The now ex-girlfriend was initially hesitant to press charges, and when she finally did, police didn't take her as seriously because she was initially hesitant. The local district attorney decided not to prosecute Purnell on abduction charges and instead chose to characterize what Purnell did as a quote-unquote domestic dispute. So again, we have another example of the justice system failing to enact justice and failing to protect victims. Something that is characterized as a domestic dispute should not involve somebody's hands being put on another person or somebody wielding any type of weapon against another person. Correct. It is absolutely ridiculous that you would characterize it that way. But if he was the football star that y'all thought he was, that actually doesn't surprise me. After this, Purnell continued to harass his ex-girlfriend over the phone and only stopped when he'd started dating a new woman from his gym. But luckily, this relationship only lasted a few months because this new girlfriend pressed charges for abuse very soon into their relationship. And because Purnell is a he decided to leave North Carolina to avoid these charges and move to Virginia Beach. And that is how we get back to Purnell and Jeannie meeting each other. 
So let's now get into Pernell and Jeannie's relationship. Even though Jeannie at first felt like Pernell was charming and confident and just this great guy, from the beginning, Jeannie's friends did not like Pernell. Denise, especially, thought that Pernell was possessive, misogynistic, and she also didn't believe a lot of the stories that he told. For example, he claimed that he'd been drafted by the NFL, but was still broke. Jeannie's friends also felt like Pernell was spying on her. But Jeannie dismissed her friend's concerns, and soon she was spending all her time with Pernell. But Pernell quickly isolated her from her friends and caused a drastic change in her personality. She stopped going out, and she was constantly worried about her physical appearance. One time, Jeannie had made plans with her friends, but when Denise came to pick her up, Pernell wouldn't let Jeannie open the door. I wish my significant other would try to tell me that I can't leave the house when she's here. Exactly. You gonna barricade the door and hold me hostage in my own house. You, I am not the one or the two. I will go to jail that day. That's the day that I would go to prison. I'm not saying for what, but I would go to jail that day. I might go to jail for a domestic dispute. And the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but honestly, they probably ramp it up for you. You're right. They wouldn't for a man, but they ramp it up for us. Oh, of course, you know. Because we're loud, angry black women, remember? Right. Can't control our emotions. We're ghetto. So soon after this, Jeannie realized that she didn't want to pursue a romantic relationship with Pernell. But she was afraid to end things due to how controlling he was. She didn't even really tell her friends and family the full extent of what she was going through with Parnell. When her mom raised concerns about these changes in her personality and about how much time she was spending with Parnell, she told her mom that her and Parnell were just friends. But Parnell was essentially living in her apartment at this point. Well, of course he did. He ain't got nowhere to live. He ain't got no money. He's not actually drafted by the NFL. He's broke. Broke. So later in 1988, Pernell packed up and moved to Richmond, Virginia unexpectedly. He told Jeannie that he got a new job as a delivery man. Jeannie was, of course, relieved, but she was still secretive about what had gone on in her relationship with Pernell. Jeannie, I'm sure, thought, okay, thank goodness he's gone. Out of my hair. But less than a month after he moved, Pernell randomly showed up at Jeannie's apartment. Jeannie had made plans to go out with her friend Denise that night, and Pernell was upset because he just got into town. Which I'm like, you ain't telling no one you was coming. I ain't want to see you, first of all, but you also didn't tell nobody you was coming. Right. But Jeannie, trying to pacify Pernell, told him that she wouldn't stay out too late. When they got back a little after 10, which I guess was too late for Pernell, Jeannie's friend Denise found that her car's windshield was riddled with bullet holes. When Jeannie confronted Pernell about this, he claimed that the neighborhood kids must have done it. Not we're back to blaming children with firearms. Full circle. Full circle. Not we've come full circle. That is so scary, bro. 
That is so scary. It's one thing for somebody to assault you physically. It's just another level of escalation when somebody starts pulling out weapons on you. And your friends. Yes. Like when abusers truly believe they have all this power over you, they will abuse you in front of other people because they know that even if they do, you're not going anywhere. Right. That really hurts my heart that she was dealing with that. So the next day after this, Pernell went back to Richmond, but he would constantly call Jeannie and leave these creepy voicemails. And he would also show up uninvited to Jeannie's apartment every weekend. And this essentially forced Jeannie into a relationship that she never wanted in the first place. But around Thanksgiving, 1988, Jeannie's ex-husband, Tony, called out of the blue. He told her that his second marriage was about to end and he wanted to see if he and Jeannie could mend their relationship. Jeannie was happy to hear from her ex, but she knew that she had to be careful because Pernell was always watching what she was doing and, of course, would be showing up uninvited without any warning. But Pernell had actually told her that he'd be out of town for the holidays to see his son in North Carolina. So Jeannie felt a little bit safer seeing Tony around Christmas. Just a week before Christmas, Pernell showed up at Jeannie's apartment unannounced, saying he had a gift. Pernell seemed like he was in a good mood, so Jeannie decided that this would be a good time to try and end things. Even though Jeannie had never agreed to be in a relationship with Pernell, she told him that she couldn't provide what Pernell wanted. And based on his reaction, it seemed like Pernell took the news well. Pernell gave her his gift, which was a gold charm bracelet, and left. Tony arrived to Virginia Beach just before Christmas, and to Jeannie, it felt like they'd never been apart. They quickly were discussing getting remarried and going to Mexico for their honeymoon. I know you got something to say about Tony, because I got thoughts too. Yeah, I got thoughts, Mr. Tony. While I am happy that Jeannie is happy, I can't stand when partners go see the grass ain't greener on the other side and then want to bring their happy ass back to my house. I've had that happen to me a few times now. I've had it happen this week, actually. Especially when you didn't even give her any courtesies on your exit. You didn't even give her the courtesy of having a discussion about divorce. You just left mm-hmm. and filed. To me, that tells me you don't give a damn about me. Right. Because if you gave a damn about my feelings, you would have at least checked in with me. You would at least handed me the paperwork and just been like, it's not working out. I don't want to deal with it. I don't want to go to couples therapy. I just want to get a divorce. You could have at least handed me the paperwork. And then maybe, maybe we could talk about this again in five years. But to right. do what you did, is it's just so dirty that I, I didn't. Again, I'm happy. I'm happy that she was happy, but I'm like, no, sir. Yeah. And I got most of the content for today's story from a Crimes of Passion episode. And according to them, it didn't really seem like she brought up the fact that he'd left her before. Didn't really seem like she tried to get answers from him on 
why he'd ended their relationship the way he did before. But considering what she was going through with Parnell, I understand her desire to just be like, I need something else. I agree. She's a better woman than me. She's a much better woman than me. So a few days after Christmas, Tony and Jeannie were sleeping together at Jeannie's apartment when they were woken up by the sound of someone pounding on the balcony door. When Jeannie went to check, she saw Purnell, who climbed up the terrace onto her balcony. Purnell tried to break in, but Tony called 911, and this caused Purnell to flee. So Tony didn't know who Purnell was, so to him, this was just somebody who was trying to break in. So he assured Jeannie that the quote-unquote intruder wouldn't be back. And Jeannie, for her part, didn't want to tell Tony who Purnell was because she was afraid that Tony would leave her. After this, even though it had seemed like Purnell took the breakup well in the moment, he would call Jeannie all the time and threaten to hurt her and her family. Jeannie still didn't tell Tony what was going on, and she didn't even really tell her family the full extent of what she was dealing with. But at this time, Jeannie and Tony were talking about getting married and buying a house in Pennsylvania. And this became Jeannie's escape plan. But near the end of January 1989, Jeannie was still pretty depressed because she felt like she'd lost all agency in her life. She spent most of her time home alone, hiding from Purnell. In February 1989, Jeannie and Tony had planned a visit to his family in Pennsylvania to look at houses. When she got back to Virginia in March, a neighbor told her that a man fitting Purnell's description had stayed several nights in her apartment. And another heads up for any of our listeners who are very sensitive to topics surrounding domestic violence, I'd recommend that you skip ahead about 45 seconds to a minute. So when Jeannie got inside her apartment, she saw that everything was destroyed. Dishes were broken, the couch was flipped over, her clothes were thrown everywhere. Purnell then jumped out from behind a door and slammed her against the wall. For the entirety of that night, Purnell beat and sexually assaulted her. Before he left, he told Jeannie that he could have someone else kill her and not even lift a finger. After this, Jeannie thought about going to her parents' house, but was afraid that her mom would blame her for what happened. And I want to say that this wasn't really because her mom had said anything, but I think she had known that she hadn't been really truthful with her mom about what was going on. So I think that she just thought that her mom would blame her for not telling her mom what she was really going through. And that was more the reason rather than her mom having blamed her in the past. This poor woman. And this is just another mechanism of which domestic abuse continues because abusers also thrive on shame, on you feeling shame for lying to your family, for lying to your friends, for that person still having access to you and being in your life. 
you run from that. You hide from that. And that's another reason why a lot of people don't tell their friends and families when they're going through things because they feel shame. And it's not your fault. You don't need to feel shame and you need people to know what's going on. You need people to be there for you because that's the only way you're going to get out. Exactly. Your friends and your family love you and they will support you. And if they don't, they are not meant to be your friend or your family. Exactly. And I stand 10 toes down on anybody who will tell you that you are responsible for the actions of others has no capacity in your life whatsoever. So after this incident, Jeannie was understandably terrified. So she decided to move in with her friend, Denise. Pernell had somehow tracked Jeannie to Denise's house and had been watching them for days to get a sense of their schedules. One day, Denise came home and couldn't find Jeannie in the apartment. But Jeannie and Denise had developed a system where they had agreed to call each other multiple times a day and check in with their locations. So when Denise saw that the answering machine was flashing, she listened to it and could hear Jeannie begging Purnell to stop and also eventually heard him drag her out of the apartment. Denise notified the police and Jeannie's parents immediately. Within hours of the investigation, Denise got a call from Jeannie, who, under Purnell's direction, tried to act like everything was okay. Denise knew Purnell was listening in, so she told him that she already had evidence of him abducting Jeannie on tape and had already handed it over to the police. Shortly after this, Jeannie told Denise that she was on her way home. Jeannie arrived back at Denise's house bruised, but did not want to press charges. She told her dad that Purnell would kill her if she talked to the police. Jeannie's father then drove her back to his house where he felt he could better protect her. But this really didn't do much to calm Jeannie's nerves. For instance, she still slept with a knife every night. Following this latest attack, Jeannie became extremely depressed. And to make matters worse, in April of 1989, Purnell called Tony and told him that Jeannie was his. Tony then broke off their engagement, stating that he didn't want to get involved in any drama. And this made Jeannie feel like Purnell had won. You didn't want to get in any drama. Did he not see her? Does he not know that she's been abused and beaten? Tony's still in Pennsylvania. So I don't, I don't think that he knew. I don't know what Jeannie might have told him after she found out Pernella called her, but he didn't know what was going on before this. And so I don't know if he knew about what had happened after she got back from Pennsylvania the last time. Okay. But... That still doesn't excuse him leaving her because I, I would think that after Penel called him and Jeannie found out, I'm sure she was like, this man has been stalking me. So my thing is, you don't even know this dude. For all you know, this could be some random person just claiming that we're in a relationship. And mind you, he didn't say that, oh, we're together. We, we go together. He said she's mine. as in property 
as in something he can take ownership of. And for you to just be like, all right, says a lot about you. And this is why I didn't trust this dude when he came around. Right. Because this is supposed to be the woman you're planning to marry. Right. And again and again, you play in her face. You play in her face again. That's another thing that'd be pissing me off because you, in my opinion, deep down, you know whether or not you're going to do right by somebody. And you knew you weren't going to do right by her. So you should have kept you a little happy behind where you was at. So at this point, Jeannie was jumping back and forth from sleeping at Denise's house to sleeping at her parents' house. And she was hoping that by switching up her schedule, not really doing anything on a regular cadence, Pernell would not be able to track her down. On May 6, 1989, Jeannie failed to show up for a hair appointment with her mom. Her mom didn't panic too much at this and figured that Jeannie had forgotten about their appointment and was with Denise. Plus, they had dinner plans that evening, so she figured that she would see her then. But when Jeannie didn't show up for dinner, her mom called Denise to check in. At this point, Denise had just arrived home from work and had gone straight to her room. So when Jeannie's mom called, she got up and started looking around the house because she also hadn't seen Jeannie. As she's looking around the house, she goes to the living room and sees that her front door had been busted down. And you might be wondering, how had Denise not noticed this before? So essentially, Denise had gotten home the night before after dance class and again had gone straight to bed. When she got home, she came through the garage and went inside the house through the garage door. So from that night to the next afternoon, she just had not passed her front door and had not seen it, which is scary to think that it was like that for so long and she didn't notice it. But that's so scary to me because not only does that allow the person who broke down the door to come into the house, but anybody could have come into the house after that. Like, that's so scary. Yeah. And I'm not sure how Denise's house was set up, but it does seem like the front door was not really visible from the street. I'm sure she also would have seen that it had been busted down had she been able to see it from the street, too. So as soon as Denise saw this, she knew something wasn't right, especially since neither her nor Jeannie's mom had seen Jeannie over the past day. She also knew that Purnell was behind whatever had happened to Jeannie. So at first, Denise hesitated on calling the police because Jeannie had previously told her that Purnell would harm both her and Denise if they ever got the police involved again. And Denise had even promised Jeannie that she would keep herself safe. But Denise knew that this time was different. So she called the police and filed the missing persons report. Even though the door is broken down, police still thought it was possible that Jeannie had left of her own accord because her car was also missing. They didn't dust the door for fingerprints or take any evidence. And they didn't even question Purnell despite the fact that Denise and Jeannie's parents told police that he was likely behind this. So because police weren't doing anything, Denise got in contact with Jeannie's ex-boyfriend, Mike, the hot police officer, and told him that she suspected Purnell had kidnapped Jeannie. 
Mike drove to Purnell's house in Richmond and questioned him on whether or not he'd seen her. But Purnell swore that he hadn't even seen her in more than two weeks. Mike, based on this, was convinced that Purnell didn't have anything to do with Jeannie's disappearance. Mike, you were supposed to be the chosen one. Mike, I had faith in you. But it's also scary because you know how you know how good liars are when they're crazy like this, when they can convince people that, oh, I had nothing. I had nothing to do with this. They have all the emotion, all the signs making you think that they're telling the truth. But I've also had this happen where somebody said that I was lying about something that they did. And they were so adamant about this that at a certain point I was like, am I lying? Like I started to question myself. So I, I definitely can see Purnell being so adamant that he had nothing to do with this and Mike coming away from it with at least some doubt over his involvement. If I were Mike understanding what Denise and Jeannie's parents were saying, I would still be looking at Purnell sideways regardless of what he said. But I definitely do know that People like this will lie through their teeth and look convincing doing it. Absolutely. And that is what we love to call gaslighting. But my thing is, like, hindsight's always twenty twenty, right? But it just feels so stupid to me that he would just be like, oh, I, I wouldn't have one conversation with him and I think he's clean, so we're fine. Because even based on your knowledge of him as a person, you should also, like, like Cam, I don't care how good of a liar you may be to someone else, I will know if you're lying. Like, there's a tick there, there's a thing there. Like, I will know as your friend if you are lying. And I feel like, I don't know how close Mike and Purnell are. I don't. But I just feel like it's so odd to me that Mike just was like, yeah, he's fine. All good. I, I don't know. It just feels like from an officer standpoint, from a police officer standpoint, as an, as an investigator standpoint, it doesn't feel like he did his job. And that's what bothers me. I agree. None of the police officers who were initially signed to Jeannie's case did their job. And I'm not defending Mike, but I, I do think like hindsight is 2020. And Mike and Pernell weren't that close. I think they just knew each other from the gym. Okay, I got you. And Pernell had this persona, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, where to everyone else, he was a nice guy. He wasn't, I'm sure Mike had never seen him angry. Had never seen that side of him. Oh, because he doesn't have the balls to get angry around men. He only has the balls to do that to women. Exactly. And I also think that as a man, Mike probably does not understand that people have different versions of themselves. Because I feel like as women, I kind of start not trusting men. If somebody tells me, yeah, this person had assaulted and stalked this other person. And I think that they might be involved in their disappearance. I'm like, okay, yeah. You know, they are guilty until proven innocent. I feel that because honestly, I'm the same way because how I look at it is I don't ever want to be on the side that believes the liar, that believes the abuser. But I am also a firm believer in trust and verify. Yeah. Well, if somebody came to me with that information, 
my immediate reaction would be to listen to you and best believe I'm going to look for every single avenue to make your story true. And then if I can't make your story true, then I got to start looking at evidence that doesn't make your story true. Mm -hmm. And to give Mike the benefit of the doubt, maybe he doesn't know about the previous abduction and, and everything. Maybe he doesn't know that. Maybe that's not going around his precinct, right? Yeah. I don't know how close Mike was to the actual precinct investigating this case. Exactly. Exactly. Right. So still trust and verify because especially in this situation, her family has no reason to lie to you. Her family is not out to get, to get Pernell. Nobody's out to get him. It'd be different if there was a, a longstanding, you know, battle and everybody's violent on all sides. That's totally different. But they have all been constantly his victim. And though you don't know that, they've also not ever come to you and been like, nah, we hate this dude. <laughs> right. So on May 10th, 1989, Denise got a call from someone. And the person on the other end of the line said that they could no longer live with what they knew. And Denise, of course, knew that they must have been talking about Jeannie. So she asked them, where is Jeannie? And the person on the other end of the line said that Jeannie was dead and they knew where her body was buried. But they were fearful that Purnell would kill them if he found out that they'd made this call. Denise put the caller into contact with Jeannie's father, who was eventually able to convince this person to share their name and more information about what happened to Jeannie. The caller eventually identified himself as Joey St. Augustine, one of Purnell's co-workers, and said that Purnell had shot and killed Jeannie and that Joey had driven Purnell to a construction site for a new church where Purnell buried her. Joey agreed to lead Jeannie's father and police to where she was buried, but when they arrived at the site, they were unable to find her body. Officers, some of which were skeptical of Joey's story, then asked if Joey would be willing to have his apartment bugged and invite Purnell over to try and elicit a confession. Joey was still afraid that Purnell would kill him if he knew he was working with the police, but the police assured him that they'd be close by if anything happened. When Purnell came over, at first, officers could hear the two making friendly greetings, but then after that, all they could hear were low, muffled whispers. 22 minutes later, Purnell left Joey's apartment, and when officers confronted Joey about what had happened, he admitted that he'd gotten scared and told Purnell that the apartment was bugged. So you want to go to jail for life. So you, so you also want to go to jail for life because now we're getting into aiding and abetting. Wow, man. Wow. Also, you're so fearful of this man, yet you tell him the place is bugged like he couldn't kill you after you told him that. Right. That doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense for you to tell him. I think maybe in his head, it was like, oh, well, maybe if I tell him, then he'll leave me alone as reward for helping him. Or he'll kill you so you can't say anything. But after Purnell found that police were looking into him, he left his job, left town, 
and never came back. Of course he did. So without a confession and with Joey as the only witness, police didn't feel like they had a strong enough case. And some of them still felt like Purnell was innocent. Police didn't even try to track Purnell down. But even though Jeannie's family felt like the police had given up, they hadn't. They drive around Virginia Beach and Richmond for hours looking for Jeannie's car. In July 1989, Jeannie's mother even went to a psychic in hopes of getting answers as to where Jeannie was. The psychic confirmed that Jeannie was dead and said that her body was near a stream that was close to a windmill. Jeannie's parents then made a list of every location with a stream and windmill in the Virginia Beach and Richmond areas and searched all of them in hopes of finding their daughter. But unfortunately, they never found her. Fed up with the police's inaction, Jeannie's father hired a private investigator who was fairly quickly able to track Purnell to Stewart, Florida, where he was staying with family and working at a pawn shop. See how quickly things happen when you actually do your job? Yeah. And it would have been especially easy for the police because Purnell wasn't even really trying to stay low. According to the PI, he was dating two women at the same time. Jeannie's father forwarded this information to the police, thinking that, okay, I did y'all's job for you. You're welcome. But they still did nothing and were claiming that it was likely that Jeannie just drove away. I hate when officers say stupid stuff like that because I know my family. I know people I love. I, I definitely have friends who are the type to pick up their life and move out of state and never tell anybody. I have friends like that. And I have friends who would never do that. And if y'all want to look me in my face and tell me my friend who I know for a fact would never just pick up their life and drive away and not tell anybody. And y'all want to tell me that's what they did. You're a liar. And what you're going to do is do your job and figure out where she is. That's ridiculous. So for months, nothing happened in this case. But on January 1st, 1990, deer hunters came across skeletal remains near Nibs Creek in central Virginia. These remains were quickly matched to Jeannie based on dental records. Among the remains, they also found the gold charm bracelet that Purnell had given Jeannie the Christmas before. And later when investigating, they found a tracking device inside the charm bracelet, which explains how Purnell was able to know where Jeannie was despite her attempts to switch up her schedule. And explains why he acted like they were on good terms when she broke up with him. Oh my God. That level of crazy is, un that's, that's unholy. That is of Satan. That level of crazy is startling. I don't have the proper word right there, but I'm scared. Yeah. And so now police were interested in kickstarting the investigation. I will say this was a different unit than was initially involved in Jeannie's case because these were the police who were based where Jeannie's body was found, not where she initially disappeared. After her remains were found, things moved pretty quickly. On January 16th, 
Jeannie's car was found parked in front of an apartment building in Richmond. When tracking how the car got there, police learned that Purnell had sold the car to a drug dealer in exchange for money and cocaine. When interviewing everyone who was involved in handling this car, police were pointed to a man named Wayne Scott. When police first interviewed him, Wayne was a little resistant, but police let him know that they had Purnell for this crime. And Wayne decided to tell them everything in exchange for immunity. So the following story is based on Wayne Scott's account of May 5th, 1989. While Jeannie was alone at Denise's house, she heard someone pounding on the door. And soon this pounding got louder and it sounded like someone was running full force at the door. Eventually, Purnell broke through the door and was joined by three other men, Wayne Scott, Charles Zimmer, and Mike Savin. When the men saw that Jeannie was home alone, they quickly fled Denise's house. However, Purnell stayed and dragged Jeannie out of Denise's house took her car keys and put her into the passenger seat of her own car. According to Wayne Scott, after the kidnapping, he went home, but the next morning, Purnell called him and told him that he'd shot Jeannie and needed to get rid of her car. Purnell wanted to move the body away from where he'd initially buried it at the construction site near the church. So Wayne, Charles Zimmer, and Mike Savin helped him move Jeannie's body to the site by the river where she was eventually found. After Wayne told the police this story, police tracked down Charles Zimmer and Mike Savin, who corroborated Wayne's story. On February 3rd, 1990, Purnell Jefferson was found at his cousin's home in Stewart, Florida, where he was arrested and charged with murder. I'll also just note that apparently, police found Purnell hiding in the closet when they arrived. And I just think that's very fitting for his character. I mean, it's behavior. What else do we expect? (laughs) Dictionary definition of behavior. So now let's get on to the trial. Purnell pleaded not guilty to the charges and tried to say that Jeannie's death was an accident. At the trial, Denise testified, but Jeannie's parents just couldn't bring themselves to it. The prosecution also brought out Wayne Scott, Charles Zimmer, and Mike Savin. They testified that they had agreed to take part in a robbery, but not a kidnapping. And so when they realized what was going on, they fled the house. Purnell admitted to the court that he kidnapped Jeannie, but he claimed this was out of character for him. Denise's testimony was able to counter this by bringing up Purnell's long history of abuse. According to Purnell, while they were driving, he'd given Jeannie the gun so that she'd feel safer, but she pointed it at him, which caused a struggle between them. And he said that she accidentally fired the gun at the roof of the car, and next thing he knew, she was dead. Forensic experts, of course, said that Purnell's story didn't match Jeannie's injuries and said that the bullet holes that they found in her skull were likely caused by a deliberate close-range shot. 
let's pretend like I believe your version of events. Right? One, I can't believe she would point a gun at me, her kidnapper. What on earth? And why would you as a kidnapper give her a gun? Right. If you want her to feel safe, don't kidnap her. It, it's, it's actually really that simple. If you wanted her to feel safe, you could have left her the hell alone. You could have left her alone and let her marry Tony. Do I think that was in her best interest? No, but she could have still did it. At least it would have been her choice. Right. And she might not have been happy, but at least she would be alive. Exactly. And then she could find happiness later because it sounds like she, I'm going to say she sounds like she should have ended up with like our tall and handsome police officer. Mm-hmm. Tall, not dark and handsome. Our tall, not dark and handsome. Can we please? That's that's the new podcast inside joke. He is tall, not dark and handsome. <laughs> Number two. This isn't GTA. People don't just get shot and die immediately. So even if she was shot, you're in a car. Why not drive to the closest hospital? But instead, you choose to hide her body, which shows consciousness of guilt. If it was truly this horrific accident and the gun just went off and shot her in the head, why did you not make any effort to make it look like that? Instead, because you know what's crazy is all your actions make this look like a homicide. Crazy, isn't it? I hate when people put up stupid defenses like during their trial. I would much rather you just say nothing. Right. I would much rather you hit us with the, well, the prosecution has to prove it. They can say I did this, but do they have proof beyond a reasonable doubt that I did it? But this whole putting up stupid defenses, when you don't have to, especially it's not your job to defend yourself like in the court of law. Why would you do that? Why would you offer things that don't make any sense for for the jury to scrutinize? Like, it just makes no sense to me whatsoever. Right. And especially, you know, they're going to bring in experts who would be able to disprove your story. Like, right. So on March 30th, 1991, Purnell was found guilty of capital murder. On August 6th of 1991, he was sentenced to life in prison with a minimum sentence of 25 years. Purnell continued to say that Jeannie's death wasn't his fault and tried to appeal twice, but was denied both times. After his appeals were denied, he also turned to media outlets. And in an interview with a journalist who eventually wrote a book about the story, he compared himself to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. He still denied shooting Jeannie, but blame steroids for turning him into Mr. Hyde and making him kidnap her. Sir, you were violent before you were taking steroids. So now what? Exactly. And that's what everyone brings up whenever he says that. Because even in your scenario, I will give you that roid rage is a thing. We'll definitely give you that. But it's really only very bad in people who are already predisposed to anger and violence. Somebody who's actually a good person, somebody who actually doesn't feel the need to beat up people who are more vulnerable than him. Don't do that when they're on steroids. Exactly. And studies haven't even come to the conclusion that steroids make people more aggressive. 
And they're not really sure if it's a correlation versus a causation thing where people who are already aggressive are more likely to take steroids or if it's just that it can affect people in different ways. There is definitely evidence to say that people who are already aggressive become more aggressive when they're on steroids, but it's not that steroids are causing the aggression. Correct. So a couple of updates after the whole trial went down. Pernell Jefferson was eligible for parole as of 2011. And according to a file listing parole decisions, Pernell was last denied parole in January of 2019. There were multiple reasons listed in the file, but some of the ones that stuck out to me cited his history of violence and also said that a release at this time would diminish the seriousness of his crimes. So luckily, it does seem like Purnell is not getting out anytime soon. That means that he won't take ownership. Exactly. I've started watching a lot of parole hearings recently. When people adamantly deny doing something that they clearly did based on evidence, and they try to say that the evidence is wrong or the expert was incorrect or something like that, They will keep your butt in prison longer because, oh, you don't think you did anything wrong? Then you're not meant to walk amongst us in society. Exactly. The only way they might be be willing to let him out if he would take ownership of what he did. But since we all know that's never going to happen, hopefully he dies in prison. And I totally agree with that because Purnell has tried to paint himself as reformed He is apparently not taking steroids anymore and has become an advocate against steroids, blaming them for what he did to Jeannie, which he just describes as kidnapping. But I still think this is his way of wanting to control the narrative, wanting to be seen as this great person, because when the journalist who eventually wrote the book about him interviewed him, he described himself as a model prisoner that other prisoners looked up to. There's still this obsession with his image. Of course. Abusers love to control narratives. Abusers love to make themselves more important than they actually are. Because what you find is the majority of people who are out here abusing other people have no self-confidence, no self-worth, nothing in life that actually makes them feel important. So they have to make other people feel small in order for them to feel big. So that doesn't surprise me at all that he thinks so highly of himself because... First of all, you're a textbook, but most importantly, you're a textbook abuser and a textbook narcissist. I'm going to go ahead and call it. I don't like when people use that term. I don't. But you're a textbook narcissist. It's ridiculous. So another thing that happened after the trial was in February of 1992, Jeannie's mom, Carrie Prickett, led an effort to get Virginia to pass a law that would make stalking a crime. Jeannie's mom when testifying to state legislators, said that she couldn't even look at herself in the mirror for three months after Jeannie disappeared because the guilt just ate at her. Since Jeannie's death, all 50 states have some form of a stalking law, and Congress even passed a federal law in 1996. I will note that even though all 50 states have some form of a stalking law, they definitely vary in strength and their ability to actually give victims a path forward that makes them feel safe and heard. I do hope that one day the penalties are equal to the trauma 
that you put on somebody's life when you stalk them. I definitely agree. And we will be placing links to resources that support domestic violence victims, as well as a link that will explain what stalking laws are for your specific state so that you know what your rights are and you know what the process is should you or anyone you know ever be in a situation like this. Another thing I want to say about this case is that as you alluded to earlier, Dev, I feel like the reason that Pernell's crimes weren't taken seriously earlier on, back when he was in college, was because he was the football star. And Pernell is a black man, and his college girlfriend, as well as Jeannie, were white women. And there's definitely a disparity in the treatment that white and black women receive in cases like this. But I feel like that disparity decreases whenever the abuser is some type of athlete, especially a football player. Because men's ability to forgive athletes for their transgressions, especially when those transgressions are against women, is seriously appalling. It's ridiculous. But let's also be real that nobody cares about the black man. They care about how well he plays on Saturday or Sunday. And that's what's important. Because trust me, if they could throw the man in jail without throwing the athlete in jail, they throw him in jail. They just can't separate the two. But they can't put him in jail. He has to throw for 300 yards on Saturday. So we can't we can't put him in jail. And we saw the similar things with Herschel Walker, with all the allegations that came out against him. And it wasn't like this was news to anybody who had been in Georgia or had gone to UGA around the time he was a student. It's not a secret if you if you go there ever. Everyone knew. We we knew in 2016. Like it's 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 UGA lore that yeah, Herschel was a decent football player. Woo hoo, but he's a terrible human being in every facet of the word. We even talk about it now. We there has there was actually a time when he was running for office that students were actively petitioning to get his number and like a lot of his legacy that's on campus removed for allegations that came from his ex-wife. Obviously, it never went anywhere and his number is still all over University of Georgia campus. And it sickens me. It sickens me. It disgusts me because they give a pass to star athletes. If it's going to impact the final score on Saturday or Sunday, nobody needs to know. And I say that as a football fan. I love football. I watch football all day, Saturday and Sunday. I do. But I'm also well aware of the issues that come with the sport. Exactly. And I think this case was just so sad because. It really was in a matter of months that Pernell completely turned Jeannie's life upside down. And I know what it's like to be in therapy and do a lot of work on yourself. So I can only imagine to have all of that just taken away in such a short period of time. Yeah. And it really stuck out to me when you said that she felt like she had no autonomy over her own life. That's a sad, sad place to be. 
Like that hurt me when you said that. Her mom even said he killed her before he even pulled the trigger. That's a sad, sad thing, man. That's a, that's, oh, that, that hurts. That hurts me a lot. I hope her family is okay. I hope Denise is okay. This is, I just hate senseless crimes like this, man. Because you did all this because she dared to live her own life. Because she dared to not give you access to her. Because she dared to have autonomy over her own life. Any other thoughts, friends? Nope, that's all I got. Thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode. I'd also like to thank Crimes of Passion and the Lethbridge Herald for providing most of the material for this episode. If you'd like to check out photos related to this case, follow us at Criminalish Podcast on Instagram and TikTok. Listeners, if you like what you hear, be sure to leave us a five-star review wherever you're listening to the Criminalish Podcast. And if you're listening to us on Spotify, feel free to leave any comments or questions. As always, stay nosy, my friends. Bye. Bye.